Hebrews 2020. Don't ever forget this title. We see Jesus. Increment 147. And I want to remind our listeners, by now you will have heard that we, are, we have a target date of going back on our face-to-face church services on August the 15th. That's Sunday, August the 15th. Now, at first, we're only going to be doing this on Sundays for a brief time just to see how that works out. Sundays only. And there will be online services Wednesday nights. Then gradually or maybe even shortly after that, we'll move into our usual Sunday and Wednesday schedule. But when we start August 15th, we're going to be moving with some flexibility. Again, that is a target date. And given the way history is going now, we have to be very flexible people. Flexibility is a virtue in our time for sure. So be aware of that. And none of you has to be aware that August 16th was the turning point in the Revolutionary War, which was the Battle of Bennington, fought a few short miles from my home as a child. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't mention that. But it'll help you understand and help you remember. It's a mnemonic device. It'll help you remember August 15th, our target date. All are welcome to attend. There's no political divisions, no ideological divisions. We have a unity in Christ. We'll celebrate that unity in Christ together on that day. Lord willing, Lord willing. Lord willing. We're going to Hebrews 6, 9 today, and we're going to consider a couple of items. I don't know how far we'll get, but I do want to consider the quiddity of salvation. Quiddity, Q-U-I-D-T-I-T-Y, probably won't find that in the dictionary. It comes from the answer to the question, quidsit. What is it in the Latin? Quidsit. What is salvation? What is soteria? We've introduced the concept of the free state of soteria, But that's only a part of what salvation is, and we want to take a look at it today. We want to rightly divide or accurately handle the word of truth with regard to the the doctrine of salvation, which is called soteriology in a theological setting or a theological seminary, which our teachings really do constitute sort of that, a kind of a seminary or academic setting but at the same time, a, an opportunity for us all to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to manifest the life of Jesus toward one another in love and to fellowship together with the saints. It's a wonderful privilege. And so, Father, we thank you for this wonderful open door. You've opened it, and you're holding it open so we can pass through it. No man can shut it. No man should even dare to. You've opened this opportunity for us. We walk through that door now. And at the same time, we open the door upon which our Lord Jesus is knocking. And we invite our Lord Jesus in to sup and dine with us in this message. We ask this and give you thanks in his name. Amen. Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. Even though, now even though we're speaking in this manner... The writer refers to his rhetorical manner of speaking in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. Beloved, that word is used once and once alone in Hebrews, but it really reflects the whole tenor of the heart of the writer and, of course, of the heart of God, the God of love in 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven, the God who is a consuming fire of love in Hebrews twelve twenty nine, compared with 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16 in Song of Solomon So, now even though we're speaking in this manner, beloved, we're completely persuaded. I like the way Paul said it in Romans 14, 14. I'm completely persuaded by the Lord Jesus himself. No doubt the Lord Jesus himself persuaded this writer. In your case, now we have to note, in your case, those to whom he's writing, as opposed to their case, a case of a hypothetical group or category of persons who apostatize, and he does that whole categorical case, that category or hypothetical case, to show the inefficacy of 
Old Testament sacrifices. God even said that in the scriptures. I don't want sacrifices. David even said it in his rebound psalm in Psalm 51. If you wanted a sacrifice, I'd give it. You don't want it. The only sacrifice that God wanted and is satisfied by is the self-offering of his very own son who put away sin by the sacrifice of himself in Hebrews 9.26 at the juncture of the ages. So, once again, even though we're speaking in this manner, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, beloved, we're completely persuaded in your case of the better things, that is, the things that belong to salvation itself. For God is not unjust to neglect or forget your work and the labor you showed for his name when you serve the saints and you're still serving them. Hebrews is an important contribution to soteriology. Hebrews 6, 9 to 10 is a particularly important part of that contribution. Salvation is not something that one can fall from with the result that they can never be restored. Salvation in its widest horizon is an act of the triune God by which all of created reality is to be summed up in Christ. We cannot even speak of this reality as something which can be lost or forfeited by any act of will or by any creaturely action, whatever. The reality of salvation is Jesus himself. But there is also that which we call the free state of soteria, which is a way of identifying the Christian spiritual life. The Christian spiritual life can be looked upon in many ways, and one of the best ways to look upon it is a soteriological way. For the spiritual life itself is a kind of ongoing salvation of the soul. That spiritual life that we're talking about is a dynamic state in which we experience being saved. I use that word experience advisedly, however. That experience can be forfeited by the free will of Christians because our will has been liberated at regeneration. Being saved in the sense of the experience of the spiritual life means that our soul is lost to the enslaving control of sin. Lost to the enslaving control of sin or the flesh, capital S and capital F. And found, our soul is found in the liberating power of the spirit. So the sin, the reign of sin loses our soul. The reign of the flesh loses our soul. Our soul is found in the reign of the son, the Lord Jesus Christ, in the liberating power of the spirit. He or she who experiences the loss of the control of his or her soul by the flesh finds his or her soul, by sharing the life of the age to come with Jesus. I can choose to live by my own faith in God, or I can choose to participate in Jesus' faith and faithfulness. My faith vacillates. Jesus' faithfulness never falters or fails, just as God's love never fails. So I think I'll live by the faithfulness of the Son of God. So here's the question asked right out. Salvation. Quits it. What is it? One. And these aren't a com- this is not a complete compendium of what salvation is. These are seven suggestive points to start with. And then we'll do another chapter of it right on the heels of this one. What is it? One. Salvation is an act and action of the Lord, the God of Israel. Psalm 3.8, Jonah 2.9. Our God, and I'm using this kind of awkward wording of the Septuagint into English, of Psalm 67.21, Septuagint, English translation, Psalm 68.20. Our God is the God to save, and to the Lord, Lord, belongs the escape routes from death. So, more clearly, that would simply say, our God is a God of salvation, and 
to the Lord belongs the escape routes from death. Such is the wording of the Septuagint in Psalm 68.20, our English Septuagint version being Psalm 67.21. Two, salvation is enacted by or accomplished by God through Jesus Christ. Or salvation is mediated through Jesus Christ. Three, salvation is the act of God in Christ by which the world under the reign of sin is liberated or saved. Four, salvation is the goal of the first and second divine missions. Under four, in an outline form, capital A, 4A. Regarding the first divine mission, we have this verse. For God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but in order to save the world through him. That is through the son's mediation. John 3.17. In connection with this mediation, Bernard Lonergan wrote in his book called The Redemption on page 363, quote, It is the way of God's justice. Please note this because we're going to get into God's justice, hopefully, in the back end of this message. It is the way of God's justice to act through secondary causes and in accordance with their natures. This is why God himself became human that he might be a secondary and proportionate cause in restoring all things, he has Ephesians 1.10 in parentheses, and making all things new, and he has 2 Corinthians 5.17 in parentheses. You'll see all this in print. B, under outline, our outline, 4B. Regarding the second divine mission, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This is the Holy Spirit who is called the seven spirits of God in Revelation in an apocalyptic sobriquet. He is sent into all the earth, says Revelation 5, 6. He is the same Holy Spirit whom God sends into our hearts and who, quote, pours out the love of God in our hearts in Romans 5, 5. Because of the second divine mission, the salvation enacted in Jesus on the cross in the first divine mission is actuated by the Holy Spirit as a dynamic state of love, that which we have named the free state of soteria. Because this is so difficult to articulate, I want to just say this. Divine mission has to do with the accomplishment of universal redemption and salvation. The second divine mission has to do with, and here's a strange word, but I have to use it because it's the best I can find. Instantiation. Instantiation. We have to introduce this into our English vocabulary. Second divine mission means that the universal salvation accomplished by Jesus on the cross and then the Christ event accomplished by God mediated through Jesus Christ is instantiated or finds instances of its practical application in individuals. And eventually, when the Lord comes, that instantiation will be realized in every individual that has ever lived over the course of all time, and in every individual created being, angelic and human, and in fact, all beings and all creation. That's just an introduction, but I just want you to be familiar with the word instantiation. Read a definition of it in your favorite dictionary. Get familiar with that term, instantiation. Five, under what is salvation. But first, before that, I want to just finish off. Let's just read again, 4B. Regarding the second divine mission, God sent the Spirit of the Son into our hearts. There's individual instantiation, crying, Abba, Father. And again, this is the Holy Spirit who is called the seven spirits of God as a, an apocalyptic sobriquet in Revelation. 
He is sent into all the earth, says Revelation 5, 6, his universal mission. He has a universal mission like the Son did. This is the same Holy Spirit whom God sends into our hearts to create instantiations of that universal salvation, individual instantiations, and who pours out the love of God in our hearts so that our spiritual lives is a dynamic state of love, Romans 5, 5. Because of this, the second divine mission, call it DM if you want, don't don't and make a distinction, that is, between direct messaging and divine mission. Second DM, the salvation enacted in Jesus on the cross is actuated by the Holy Spirit as a dynamic state of love, that which we have named the free state of soteria. Five, salvation is by God's grace and through God's divine faithfulness mediated through the Son's human faithfulness in which human beings are invited to participate. There's many layers to that fifth one, so I'll repeat it. Salvation is by God's grace and through God's divine faithfulness, mediated through the Son's human faithfulness in which human beings are invited to participate. Six, for the reason that salvation is a divine act and action mediated through the faithfulness of the Son, to speak of salvation as something that can be lost or forfeited is absurd, if not blasphemous. Salvation in its most profound and fundamental essence has already been accomplished for all of humankind and all of creation, including the created beings called angels. Now, be careful because there is a sense where an experience of the preservation of our soul can be lost. In that sense, we could say, wow, you lost your salvation. You lost your mind. You lost your soul. You're losing yourself in a sense of dread and fear and anxiety and worry and hysteria. So there is that sense, too. Seven, salvation has individual experiential instantiations. We read of being saved. That's an experience as the experience of those who understand and treasure the word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18. And we read of perishing as the condition and even the experience of those who consider the word of the cross to be offensive nonsense, 1 Corinthians 1.18, same verse. This category of persons that are called the perishing, which we all were once, they may not call their condition perishing. They won't go to their therapist or psychiatrist and say, I'm perishing. They will not likely see it as such until they encounter the living God, at which time they will say with the prophet Isaiah, Woe unto me, I am undone. We read of salvation as an experiential instantiation in James 1.21 where James writes of the power of the implanted word. That power is to save the soul or the souls of those who receive it with humble teachability. And that humility sometimes means submitting to a human pastor, teacher who's qualified, gifted, and who studied his guts out. 1 Peter 5.5 5, talks about the younger submitting to the elder in that sense. But it also tells the younger and the elder, the student and the teacher, to be clothed with humility. The lack of humility in a teacher ruins the teaching ministry. The lack of humility in the learner ruins the learner's teachability. Humility all around. Let's toast to it. 1 Peter 5, 5, and 6. We read in Philippians 2, 12 of the mandate to, quote, work out your own salvation, which in essence is a command to make God's act of deliverance effective in your own life by realizing that it is God in you, that God is in you, both willing and doing in accordance with his own divine benevolence and beneficence. Philippians 2, 13. 
being in the experiential condition of salvation, otherwise known as soteria, is living and moving and simply having our being within a sphere of freedom. Freedom from the enslaving reign of sin and the tyranny of the flesh. In personal or historical adversity, some people lose their souls. You've heard people say, I'm losing my mind. I'm losing it. I don't have it together anymore. In personal or historical adversity, some people lose their souls to hysteria, to fear. They're not even present to you anymore. A person who once was carefree and happy and joyous and could kid around and have humor and enjoy your company, all of a sudden because of anxiety and hysteria and fear and guilt, they're not even who they were. They're not even present to you or present to the situation. They're not even there in essence. They've lost their soul to hysteria, to fear, to the debilitating weight of the evil of guilt, unresolved guilt, and to a conscience not purged by the blood of Christ. In personal or historical adversity, some people lose their souls to hysteria, to fear, to debilitating worry and anxiety, or they faint under the crushing evil of guilt. Jesus spoke of people fainting with fear and foreboding at things that are coming during the great tribulation that preceded the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in in Luke 21-26. So in that historical crisis, the great tribulation that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, men's heart will fail them with foreboding and fear, and they will faint. But he also said to his disciples, by perseverance you acquire your souls. In Luke 21, 19. Now, it's time to drop another lens. You say, wow, I see a little bit clearer about what salvation is, but not too clear. Well, let me be an optometrist. Let me drop another lens that you can view through to see more clearly the quiddity or the whatness, quiddity or whatness of salvation. Salvation, what is it? I'll ask again. We'll now approach this question more pointedly from the standpoint of the two divine missions and Hebrews 6, 9, and 10. Hebrews 6, 9 refers primarily to the first divine mission in which universal reconciliation was accomplished in Christ during the Christ event. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their sins to them. 2 Corinthians 5, 19. That's salvation. Hebrews 6.10, however, refers to the second divine mission in which the Holy Spirit brings about individual instantiations of salvation. Instantiate, according to the American Heritage College Dictionary 5th edition, my favorite dictionary, says, to represent by a concrete or tangible example. Then he uses this phrase of a person named Jay Holloway. It says, two apples both instantiate the universal redness. So you almost have to get Platonic to understand this. Plato talked about universals in particulars. There is this universal concept, an abstract concept that we would call chair. No article, just chair. Now I'm looking before me and I look at about I'm seeing about 80 empty chairs. Each of those chairs is an individual concrete instantiation of the concept of chair. Now, that's Platonic. That's Plato. And Hebrews is not Platonic, nor is it Philonic in the sense that it's from Philo. It is not that. But to use the Platonic view here, it's important to understand there is a universal called salvation, something God has accomplished in Christ, something that can't be lost or forfeited, it's done. It is Jesus. 
But then there are individual instantiations of that salvation that happen when the Holy Spirit awakens people to faith in Christ and gifts them with faith. And that's an individual instantiation. That's when the will is liberated and the will therefore is liberated either to participate in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ in the filling of the Holy Spirit and walk by the Spirit or it may choose not to do so and to entertain and experiences, experience the consequences of a refusal to do so. So there we have the two concepts of salvation or let's just say the universality of salvation and then its individual instantiation. I know that's very technical, but we'll get it down to where it can live and be helpful and a weapon in the trenches. So, the experience of those who have tasted the heavenly gift. What is that? It instantiates the universal salvation that was wrought by God in Christ in the first advent. I was struck, incidentally, looking at my dictionary, that the word instantiate was very close, I think seven words away from the word instauration. On page 909 of the American Heritage College Dictionary, 5th edition. The first divine mission accomplished universal salvation in Jesus. The second divine mission, ongoing through this clash of the ages and right now, brings about instantiations of that universal salvation. <coughs> so Christ's coming a second time, what about that? When Christ comes a second time, in Hebrews 9.28, he will bring salvation with him, which means that salvation that he brings with him will be the actuation of that universal salvation in all of creation. It's manifestation, it's actuation, it's being made actual and real and experiential in all creation and in all created beings and therefore every individual created being in all of human history will experience its own individual instanta instant instantiation of that salvation. Every creature individually and together. This is why the PT can say, quote, we're persuaded of the better things regarding salvation even though we we spoke in such a rhetorical manner. He's not saying, look, salvation is somehow insecure. Of course it is not. You can't undo what God has done in Christ. You can't undo the successful mission of the Son who was sent so that through him the world would be saved. You can't undo that. You can't save the world Neither can you undo God's salvation of the world, even though you may try. You may try to save the world. You may try to undo God's salvation of the world and say that you're the savior of the world. You would be an arrogant ignoramus, an idiot, and a moron that makes the three stooges look like three people from the Mensa Society. But you can't undo what God has done in salvation. Neither can I. Neither can anyone. Neither can Satan. Neither can the whole world. Neither can presidents and kings and dictators and popes and cardinals, monsignors and pastors and teachers and evangelists who are off the mark. So, the PT takes away the danger of 6, 4 to 8 being misinterpreted as revealing an insecurity about salvation itself. He takes the danger out of that firearm, as it were. It surely has been misinterpreted, Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, as doing just that, making salvation insecure. And it looks like that by those who distort the scriptures, whether knowingly or in ignorance. The PT takes care to assure his readers of his confidence on both levels. What do I mean by that? I mean, their salvation won by Jesus Christ in Divine Mission 1 is entirely intact. And 
He also assures them not only of the security of salvation itself, but that he is also persuaded that they are in the state of soteria as a result of the Spirit's work in them in divine mission too. That's the combination back-to-back of 6.9 dealing with DM1 and 6.10 dealing with DM2. But it also deals with something quite remarkable called God is not unjust. Now here comes the final point of doctrine, or not a final point, let's just call it a fine point of doctrine. The free state of soteria, I refer to previous message where I actually defined that for the whole message, is not an automatically permanent and unchallenged state for the believer. That's why we're told to stand firm in the freedom wherewith Christ freed us and to hold fast our confession of Jesus as the Son of God. So we're engaged in a theological exegesis of Hebrews. In case you forgot, you might have forgot when we mixed it up with Hebrews 6, 4 to 8 for a while. That was like a barroom brawl. And I feel like somebody who got really beat up and thrown through the front window and bounced into the street and then got back up again. But you might feel that way. But we're engaged in a theological exegesis of Hebrews still anyway. In the same, in the center of the assuring pair of verses in Hebrews 6, 9 to 10 is this declaration. God is not unjust. God is not unjust. God is just, then, on the other hand, converse of that truth. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him, according to Hebrews 11.6. Seek and you will find him, says Jeremiah 29.13. Seek and you will find, said Jesus in Matthew 7. His reward is all out of proportion to the merit of our deeds. Let's say that again. His reward is all out of proportion to the merits of our deeds. A prophet's reward for a cup of cold water, for example, or a disciple's reward for a cup of cold water just because someone's a disciple. You give somebody a cup of cold water just because they're a disciple, and therefore you receive that disciple's reward. So God's reward is all out of proportion to the merit of the deed because God's justice is one with his grace and love. That's why. God's justice is one with his, ju- with his grace and his love. God's love surpasses all ideas of human social or legal justice. His mercy transcends and exceeds our sense of proportion or symmetry and certainly surpasses lex talionis, which is the law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The law of the cross that we've spoken of many times, not only in this series, but in Romans and other places, is the sine qua non of divine justice. It's the indispensable feature of divine justice. You can't define divine justice without the law of the cross, for the law of the cross is God's justice. When someone asks you, what about God's justice? as an objection to the doctrine of universal salvation or the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, you may gently answer, and you should gently answer and courteously answer, not argumentatively answer, that God's justice is ultimately demonstrated in his act of justification of all of humanity because of the fact that all judgment was drawn to Jesus on the cross who endured, we could say, hell on the cross. Talk about an experiential state. To remind us, what is the law of the cross? Maybe you've forgotten. I do. I forget it all the time and have to reiterate it and requote it. The law of the cross was given definition by Lonergan in Thesis 17 in his book called The Redemption. Volume 9 of the Lonergan Collection on page 197. Here's Thesis 17. I think we hit it in the Doctrine of the Mystery. I think we hit it in the doing and living theology. I think we hit it in Romans. I think we hit it maybe even all the way back in Revelation. I don't recall. But Thesis 17 says this, understanding the mystery, the law of the cross. Quote, this is why the Son of God became man, suffered, died, and raised again, because divine wisdom has ordained and divine goodness has willed not to do away with the evils of the human race through power, 
but to convert those same evils into a supreme good according to the just and mysterious law of the cross. Why is it a just law? Because it is God's law. Why it is a mysterious law? Because it's about God's mystery, which is to sum up all things in Christ Jesus. Everything in the fullness of times, meaning over the course of all time. Notice that the law of the cross is just. It demonstrates the ultimacy of God's justice. When someone asks, what about God's justice? As an objection to your conviction of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ, answer with the just and mysterious law of the cross. In a time when human and institutional injustices are becoming more and more commonplace and are often carried out by those who complain about injustice, it is profitable to reflect on the truth that God is not unjust. And that's what we have in our Greek text today, in our Greek title, God is not unjust, nor is he forgetful of the service of his people rendered in love, though he is forgetful of our sins. Hebrews 8.12, Hebrews 10.17, Jeremiah 31.33, Jeremiah 38.33, Septuagint. The agents of this present evil age are just the opposite, whether they're human agents of Satan or Satan's invisible cohorts. They do just the opposite. They remember people's sins, real or imagined, and their faults, and even highlight them in slander while they quickly forget any faithful service that people have rendered. God is not unjust. He's not unjust to forget He doesn't confabulate, meaning fill in gaps in memory, by fabricating memories. Some people could fabricate a memory. One person could be responsible, say, for a vaccine, say Jonas Salk and the polio vaccine. Another scientist may, after a few years, say, you know, I developed that vaccine, and he may even take credit for it. He may confabulate. He may distort memory and say, yes, it was really me, not Jonas Salk. And you say, well, there's even more egregious things than that. It was me, not Jesus Christ, who saved the world. Well, God doesn't confabulate or fill in gaps with memory by fabricating memories. God doesn't forget the acts we've done during our earthly pilgrimage, acts accompanied in faith or with faith, acts accomplished in a faith that works by love. God is just to forget our sins and never recall them again. And again, we've cited 8.12 of Hebrews as well as 10.17 with a conference with Jeremiah 31.33, Septuagint 38.33, because why? Because his son accomplished the final sacrifice for sins, removing them once and for all. God is just and the justifier of Jesus, says Romans 3.26 in the most proper translation of that verse. He is the justifier of Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness. Not yours, not mine. He is the justifier of the ungodly because of Jesus' faithfulness, not because of the faithfulness of the ungodly. God is just and the justifier of Jesus because of Jesus' faithfulness, in Romans 3.26. Therefore, God is the justifier of the ungodly for whom Jesus died, Romans 4.5.5.6, compared with 1 Peter 3.18, and confer with Romans 1.17, etc., etc., et al. God is called simply God who justifies. What does your God do? Oh, he justifies. He's the judge of all. Yeah, but I heard your God is the judge of all. Yeah, he is. He's the God who justifies all. He's the God who let all judgment of all come upon his son. He's the God who justifies. God justifies. Who's Christ then? Christ is the one who died. Yea, rather is risen and ascended and making intercession at the right hand of the Father. 
So God is called simply the God who justifies in Romans 8.33. In Romans 5.18, he justifies and gives life to all of humanity because of Jesus' once and for all sacrifice, his singularly salvific one act of righteousness. A defensible translation of Romans 3.26 once again indicates this declaration about God. He is perfectly just and the justifier of the one by means of faithfulness. Namely, Jesus. In Romans 6, 7, Jesus is called the one who died, as he's called that in Romans 8, 34. Who's going to condemn you? Jesus, the one who died? Who's going to condemn and accuse you? God, the one who justifies? You want to know about justice? That's justice. What about justice? That's all about justice. And so... In Romans 6, 7, Jesus is called the one who died. And when he died, all died, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 14. If you know that, then the love of Christ is beginning to control you, not judgmentalism. We judge this, that if one died for all, then all have died. Therefore, the love of Christ controls us. In Romans 6, 7, the one who died is justified away from sin. The word translated justified is often translated freed or liberated in the context of that verse, Romans 6, 7. And that's probably the proper sense. But it's also notable that the word is the same word for justified, dikaio, throughout Romans. The point is that Jesus, the one who died, Jesus is the one who died. And in his death, all died. No one living can be justified in God's sight, says Psalm 143, 2, quoted in Romans 3.20. No one living, no one living, no flesh, no living person can be justified in God's sight. So what? So Christ died, and in him, all died. So dead people can be justified in God's sight, not living ones. And we died with Christ, who was justified in his resurrection, as we were too. That's the gospel. That's not a partial gospel. That's not a gospel that's weakling, a weakling's gospel. That's the gospel of the grace of God. That's the gospel of God about his son. Preachers preach it. Teachers teach it. And damn the consequences. Now, Jesus dying was experiencing the wages of sin for all of humankind. He was justified away from sin. He became sin, and in his resurrection on the cross, in his resurrection, he was justified or liberated away from sin. And so, when he arose, all rose justified away from sin. To be justified away from sin is to be freed from the reign of sin, as Romans 5.21 and Romans 6.12 calls it. It is to have entered the free state of soteria over which Jesus Christ reigns as king and over which he mediates as priest. We have been justified by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, by the obedience of Jesus, and not by our faith. However, faith is not nothing. By it, we please God. By it, we experience the peace and joy which are characteristics of the reign of God. In Romans 15, 13, conferred with Romans 14, 17. The reign of sin disunites, fragments, and atomizes people. The reign of God restores, reintegrates, brings peace with order and unity in truth. The reign of sin is a progressive disunity. The reign of the Son is a progressive unifying and solidarity of humanity. God is not unjust, Hebrews 6.10. He does not unjustly condemn those for whom Christ died. He does not condemn those for whom the resurrection of Jesus meant justification. 
God who is just and cannot be unjust as the God who justifies. He is the God who justifies the ungodly because Christ died for the ungodly. God who is not unjust is the just and justifier of Jesus on the basis of Jesus' faithfulness. And he is the justifier of all of humankind on that same basis. The faithfulness of Jesus, his son. On top of that, God is not unjust to forget your work and your service to the saints, which is accomplished by a pre-motion of Christ in you and by the power of the indwelling spirit. He's not unjust to forget the labor that you've performed by love for his name. In our time when injustice seems to be ubiquitous, it is heartening to know that God is not unjust. And more than that, God, the judge of all, as he's called in Hebrews 13, make that 12:23. God, the judge of all, is the God who justifies. I can't emphasize that enough. The God who justifies. Justice and memory. God is not unjust to forget. He is just to remember. Injustice has a selective memory, or it engages in confabulation based on bias or partiality. God is entirely impartial in his justice because he is entirely unconditional in his love. To cite Harry Bosch, everybody counts or nobody counts. To God, everybody counts. The just God not only justifies the ungodly, he rewards the works that are accomplished by people in the state of soteria who operate in the gift of God's love. In Matthew 6.6, 6, Jesus said, listen carefully, I don't want to lose you in these last few minutes. Jesus said, Matthew 6.6, 6, but you, in contrast to the hypocrites when they pray out loud to be heard by people, when you pray, Go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you in the open. God, the justifier of the ungodly, is the rewarder of the seekers of God, those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11.6 compared with Jeremiah 29.13. And those who serve him and the saints who do good in secret. You don't even know who some of these people are because that's the whole point. I don't know who some of these people are because that's the whole point. What they do, they do in secret. They don't blast a trumpet and say, look, I'm putting this in an offering bucket. Look, I'm putting this coat on this beggar. Look, I'm putting this money in this plate. No. Their doing is secret. And the Father who sees in secret will one day reward them openly, publicly. In the present world, there is much injustice. It comes from governments. It comes even in the United States government. In future world, God the judge of all is there. In fact, that's what the city's name is. God is there. Yahweh Shema. God is there. Ezekiel 48:35 and Hebrews 12:22 to 24 illustrates it with detail. In future world God the judge of all is there. He's simply there. And all injustice will have been entirely eradicated while satisfaction will be had by all who suffered injustice in this evil age. God is just and faithful to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we confess and not conceal our sins. So be responsible. Acknowledge your sins to God as I will with mine and do. He doesn't want a sacrifice from you. He just wants an honest confession. Just and right is he, says Deuteronomy 32.4, 
His work is perfect or complete, says Deuteronomy 32.4, in a verse that reminds us of the theme of Hebrews regarding completion. God is not unjust to forget your service and labor of love to all the saints. The opposite of to forget is to remember, to commemorate, and to reward. God who is just remembers your service in love and the love you've shown for his name in the service to the saints. And you're still serving. And I could say this to to tell us thy phalanx and to many others listening to this message. And I know that you have served the saints. You've prayed for the saints. You've prayed for me. You've prayed for your family and for friends in secret. You've served the saints in many ways that will be unknown until the Father rewards you openly. And I thank God for you. In closing, in a theological exegesis of Hebrews, we learn that A, God is not unjust, Hebrews 6.10. B, God is faithful, who promised, in Hebrews 10.23. We learn also C, that God cannot lie, Hebrews 6.18. Most of all, our God is a consuming fire of love, in Hebrews 12.29, in comparison with 1 John 4.8, 4.16, and Song of Solomon 8.6. God is not unjust. God is just. He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him also. So seek him with all your heart and you will find him, says Jeremiah 29.13. His reward is all out of proportion to the merit of the deed. Because God's justice is one with his grace and love, as I repeated from before. Again, as Jesus said in Matthew 10, 41 to 42, anyone who welcomes a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who welcomes a righteous person because he's righteous will receive a righteous person's reward. And Whoever gives just a cup of cold water to one of these least little ones because he is a disciple, I assure you, he will never lose his reward. God's love surpasses all ideas of human justice. It far transcends our sense of mere fairness or proportion or symmetry. The law of the cross is the sine qua non, the indispensable feature of divine justice. Once again, in closing, God, the judge of us all, God, the judge of all, Hebrews 12, 23, is God who justifies, in Romans eight thirty three, God, the judge of all, judges all by justifying all, thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, may we indeed continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to whom indeed belongs the glory both now and to the ages to come, into future world and into the third age where you will be all in all. We ask this in his name. Amen.